Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Once upon a time, I was deep into collecting bootleg recordings of my favorite bands. And this obsession came from a very good place, or at least I thought so. I'd already bought all the albums and all the singles, collected a bunch of memorabilia, snapped up the t-shirts, gone to all the shows. But I wanted more. And the only place to get more was unofficial or illegal releases. Almost everything I accumulated was on CD. Some were burned discs that I traded for with other hardcore fans. I might go to eBay once in a while before they shut that down. There were a few stores that I knew stocked these discs for special customers. And whenever I went overseas to certain countries where copyright laws were lax, uh, Russia, Indonesia, a few places in the Caribbean, I would be sure to visit the stores and market stalls to see what they had. Now, I, I honestly was not trying to rip off or hurt anyone. I just love these bands so much that I needed to own a copy of everything they did. Once, when I talked about my bootlegs on the radio, probably not a smart idea, this was back in the oh, 1990s, I got a letter from the head of a recorded music industry association calling me morally reprehensible. That's a quote. But over the years, these hard copy bootlegs became harder and harder to find, thanks to crackdowns on illegal exploitation of intellectual property, the disappearance of these friendly record stores, and most importantly, the rise of online file sharing. By 2008 or so, the physical bootleg market had all but collapsed. I haven't acquired anything new for my collection for almost, well, since maybe 2008, 2009. But I've never lost my fascination with these recordings. Where did they come from? How were they made? Who distributed them? Did they really hurt artists in the industry? And what kind of legacy did old school music bootlegs leave behind? I found some answers to those questions and more. This is another look at bootlegging, part two. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, obviously with an early version of 1979. At that time, it's known as the Sadlands Demo, which evolved out of an early composition Billy Corgan called Strollin'. Now, Strollin' was the last of 56 songs that Billy wrote for what would become the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album. It wasn't much, just a couple of chord changes, a bit of a melody, and a couple of lyrics. When he presented that original, original demo to Flood, the producer of the album, Flood said, dude, this is not good enough. Don't even think about putting it on the record. Billy took that as a challenge. He went home and returned with the demo that we just heard. Flood was impressed with it, got it recorded, put it on the album, 
and now 1979 is considered to be one of the most important songs in the Smashing Pumpkins canon. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and the backstory of 1979 is another example of why I used to collect so many bootleg recordings. I was such a Pumpkins fan that I needed to possess every version of every song. The original album track, the single, any 12-inch remixes, alternate takes, TV appearances, radio broadcasts, any and all live performances, and any demos that led to the creation of the song in the first place. And even though the old-school bootleg industry has pretty much died out because of file sharing, streaming, and box sets, we'll get to that later, there is such a history to these recordings that I'm still fascinated by the subject. On part one of this program, we covered the history of bootleg recordings going back to the early 1900s. We looked at the role played by the cassette. There's the whole issue of artists that encourage taping at their shows. How bootleggers captured and documented important historical performances that would have otherwise disappeared forever, and how some illegal recordings made the transition to legal ones. I want to start this episode with more deep background. Film soundtracks were bootlegged a lot. Yes, you could buy the official soundtrack album, but some people wanted the music as heard in the film itself, and people have been making illegal recordings in theaters as far back as the 1950s. But then we get to July 1969, and that's when a double Bob Dylan album called Great White Wonder started turning up in Los Angeles. This wasn't the first bootleg vinyl album, but it sure was the first important one. Two enterprising hippies known as Ken and Dub somehow came into possession of 24 unreleased Dylan recordings that ran for about two hours that had been made between 1961 and 1967 in places ranging from some Minnesota hotel room to a performance on Johnny Cash's TV show to some studio outtakes, along with a bunch of songs that he recorded with the band, but never released. Dylan was one of the most important artists in the world in 1969, and Ken and Dub thought that everybody needed to hear these important recordings. They found someone to press up a double vinyl record on a label they called Trademark of Quality, and although it never really had a title officially, it became known as Great White Wonder. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go. Ken and Dub sold a lot of these albums out of the trunk of their cars. Radio stations on the U.S. West Coast picked up on the record. Word spread, and Ken and Dub ended up with quite a bit of money. Others noticed, and soon, bootlegs started appearing everywhere. As far as we can tell, the first Beatles bootleg appeared in January 1970. It was called Come Back, and it was essentially an early version of the Let It Be album. Some backstory there. In early 1969, the Beatles gathered at Twickenham Studios with the idea of filming a TV special based on the recording of this new album. That TV special never happened, but recordings made between January 23rd and January 28th, 1969, ended up on a test pressing that somehow leaked out. When the Rolling Stones went on an American tour in 1969, Dub, our great white wonder friend, was determined to capture some of those performances. 
using a Sennheiser shotgun mic and an Ur reel-to-reel tape recorder that he somehow managed to smuggle into a few gigs, he released Liver Than You'll Ever Be on the trademark of quality, that same label, as Great White Wonder. Rolling Stone acquired a copy and gave it a rave review. The sound is superb, full of presence, picking up drums, bass, both guitars and the vocals beautifully. It is the ultimate Rolling Stones album. Liver Than You'll Ever Be sold tens and tens of thousands of copies and forced the Stones record label to release an official bootleg called Get Your Yayas Out, which was fine, but it was so much cooler to own a copy of Liver Than You'll Ever Be. Now that the Stones and the Beatles and Dylan had bootlegs in the wild, this little corner of the world of recorded music exploded. Hundreds and hundreds of illegal, unauthorized recordings were released in the 1970s, and thousands more in the 1980s. They usually weren't fancy. To keep costs low, these records came in plain sleeves with a title stamped on the front. A few had crude artwork. They looked illicit and forbidden, which only made them more desirable. In 1973, a Canadian from Kitchener, Ontario, named Kurt Glemser, started cataloging all the bootlegs he had collected and heard about, and he published a book called Bootlegs, and then another entitled Underground Sounds. In 1975, he began a magazine called Hot Wax Quarterly that not only reviewed bootlegs, but also other collectible records from around the world. Then came the book Hot Wax. It went through 15 editions over the next 25 years, documenting the source material, the quality of the recordings, the track listings, and the packaging and artwork. The final printed version ran well over 800 pages. Glemser's works were considered to be the bootleg Bibles for the planet. And you can still check out what he put together at hotwax.com. That's H-O-T-W-A-C-K-S.com. Let's hear something else. At the height of Britpop in the middle 1990s, Oasis was one of the most bootlegged bands in the world. Live tracks, demos, outtakes, fans were buying these things by the millions, and neither Oasis nor their record label made a dime from these things. On November 20th, 1995, they performed on a French TV show. It was easy to scoop up something like that. Back to the 1970s for a moment. This was the era when arena rock and stadium rock exploded. Big shows by big acts made policing the making of bootlegs by members of the audience very difficult. As I told you in part one, fans found clever ways of sneaking recording equipment into shows. Hardcore fans were willing to pay good money for these recordings as well, especially if they lived somewhere that made it difficult or impossible to see a concert by their favorite band. All right, so who pressed up these records? In the 1970s, there were many, many record-pressing plants. The labels had their favorites, and those plants would get first dibs on contracts for official releases. Other plants didn't have those relationships and would happily take on jobs pressing up records that were, um, shall we say, of dubious legal nature. And why weren't more people prosecuted for doing this? 
Well, they were, but that could mean running afoul of the mob, who had its fingers in the bootleg record world. Some bootleggers were just out of reach. Back in the 1980s, there were charges that proceeds from the sale of bootlegs, counterfeit recordings, and pirate recordings were being funneled into the coffers of the Irish Republican Army. More recently, dealing in this kind of contraband was big in the so-called Triple Frontier area. This is where Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay share a border. Reports say that Al-Qaeda operates in that region. And it's more than just bootleg and fake CDs. Think about all those knockoff purses and watches. And copyright laws weren't and aren't the same everywhere in the world. For example, even today, you can go into a record shop in Britain and find all kinds of live recordings made by the Sex Pistols and not on any label that has, you think, any rights to them. But under British law, if a recording was made of a public performance, then it's out there and up for grabs. At least that's how I understand it. Do I buy these kinds of records when I visit the UK? What do you think? This is from the infamous Sex Pistols gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester on June 4th, 1976. The Pistols played 13 songs that night. Everything was recorded by Dave Goodman, who was working sound that evening. And thank God he did, because this has gone down as one of the most important and most influential shows in the history of punk. Only about 40 people were there. But the audience included future members of the Pet Shop Boys, Joy Division, the Buzzcocks, the Fall, and the Smiths. Also in attendance was Tony Wilson, who would later found Factory Records, one of the most important English indie labels of the 70s and 80s. And what they saw and heard that night opened their eyes. Before we move on, I should point out that a certain type of bootleg helped bring down the Soviet Union. The bosses of the USSR were terrified of Western soft power the decadent culture products that were so popular with its citizens. And rock records were at the top of the list. So many of them were banned. But some enterprising folks came up with ways around this blockade, this ban, this censorship. The first was something called Rotgensendat. Western music was transferred to discarded pieces of X-ray film that were found in the trash of hospitals. Special machines cut grooves into this thick film at 78 RPM. Audio quality wasn't great, and one of these rib records, they were called that because the bones and the x-rays were still clearly visible, wore out after about 10 plays, kind of like flexi-discs. But this is how a lot of Soviet citizens heard about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Elvis and more. Related were Magnetstat. Soviets were allowed to own reel-to-reel recorders. Those who could afford the units, made in the U.S. or Japan, used them to make copies of recordings, often from the Rentgen-Desats, and also from shortwave broadcasts. The resulting tapes were sold on the black market. Again, the Beatles and the Stones were heard this way, as were everyone from Led Zeppelin to Donna Summer to uncountable punk bands, both foreign and domestic. So, yeah, bootlegs for good. When we come back, we'll get into different types of bootleg recordings, each of which has their own charms, advantages, and disadvantages. Let's talk about different kinds of bootlegs. The most common is the audience recording. These are made when someone smuggles a tape recorder into a concert, finds a good spot in front of the speakers, and then hits the record button. We talked about these on part one of this series. Now, 
Not all audience recording booths are illegal. There were bands like Pearl Jam, The Grateful Dead, that actually encouraged fans to tape their shows. And they don't mind when fans trade tapes back and forth. They only start to get concerned when money exchanges hands. It is not cool to sell tapes of Pearl Jam gigs. Obviously, though, the sound quality of an audience recording can be kind of spotty. It all depends on the quality of the recorder and the microphone, and the spot in the venue where the recording was made, and the noise the audience makes. Many are awful sounding, but others can be really good, and even in stereo. That's a pretty good audience recording of a Blur show. The second type of bootleg is the soundboard recording. This is a recording made at the mixing console at the back of the venue. Many bands will have their sound guy tape each show so they can review the performance later. These tapes are meant for just the band and their management, but um, some of them go missing. Soundboard recordings can also be made from a radio or TV broadcast, and here's an example of that. On Friday, August 16th, 1985, R.E.M. performed at the Concert Hall in Toronto. It was recorded for a future radio broadcast. When that broadcast happened, people were ready with their tape recorders. And what a surprise. Bootlegs soon appeared. So, would you please welcome R.E.M. What's interesting about bootlegs made from radio shows is that they're sometimes turned into legitimate releases. The label simply goes to the radio station, asks to use the tapes, and issues the recording as part of a reissue or box set. REM's label has done this a lot. I've even helped them. The third type of bootleg recordings is the studio outtake, and these are amongst the most treasured of all bootlegs, and here's why. Songs rarely emerge fully formed. They often go through many revisions and many rearrangements before the composer and the producer agree upon what the song should sound like and what should be committed to record. In the process, many different versions of a song may be recorded. Little thought is given to actually releasing these recordings because the song is considered unfinished, incomplete, and unworthy. Even maybe embarrassing. They're just works in progress. But not to the hardcore fan. A chance to hear a demo, a rejected mix, or an alternate take is something very special. It's an opportunity to get inside the head of their favorite performer. It's an opportunity to see the creative process in action. However, most demos and outtakes are kept private. No one has the authority to release this stuff. But leaks do occur. Tapes tossed in the garbage outside the studio without being erased and then found by someone. For example, you too got burned this way when someone, perhaps a housekeeper, found some cassettes in a trash basket in a German hotel room. Another story is that some master tapes recording at Hansa Studios in Berlin were stolen. They'd been working on material for what would become the Achtung Baby album and left behind some song sketches. A lot of them. I know that there was an 8LP set of those recordings released in 1991. There's one version called The New U2, Rehearsals in Full Versions. 
and a more common version that was out there was entitled Salome. Both the band and their label were absolutely horrified when these bootlegs started showing up across Europe. Island Records took out full-page ads in music magazines, promising to take legal action against anyone selling these boots. Then there have been occasions where a performer has left a cassette in the glove compartment of their car, where it was uh, found by a mechanic at the garage where the car was being serviced. I mean, how difficult is it to make a copy of a cassette before the car is picked up? Bruce Springsteen found out the hard way. Sometimes there are break and enters. A band has a rehearsal space in a warehouse. Somebody breaks in and steals some demo tapes along with a couple of guitars. The Smashing Pumpkins are still bummed out about what happened to them. There are times when someone at the recording studio will make a copy of some rough mixes after hours, smuggling them out when everyone has gone home for the day. Oasis, Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, all victims after the office was closed. Once you get any kind of leak, it's really hard to stop what happens next, even though selling these records can be very risky. And besides, most editions of bootleg recordings are produced in numbers of 500 to a couple of thousand. And in most cases, the payoff just doesn't justify the risk. But still... A few more notes on the art and illegality of bootleg recordings in just a sec. The format of bootleg records has changed a lot over the decades. In part one, we talked about Lionel Mapleson, who secretly made recordings on cylinders using an Edison talking machine high above the stage of New York's Metropolitan Opera. From there, we went to wire recorders, reel-to-reel tapes, cassettes, and vinyl. Bootleg CDs started appearing by about 1987. It was a new industry, and for a while, it was possible to get some of these discs made with few hassles. But once again, the authorities got wise and made it difficult. That moved the whole bootleg industry overseas to countries where the law was a little more lax. Italy, for example. There was a loophole in Italian copyright law that said that they could sell unauthorized live recordings of a band if they set aside a percentage of the profits for the artist. However, The law did not state when the artist should get this money. The bootleg label simply opened up a bank account in the artist's name and deposited the required amount. This served two purposes. If they should ever be confronted by the band, well, they could simply write a check and be done with it. And this is the sneaky part. Under Italian law, once that money is deposited in the account, the artist is considered paid and compensated. To complicate matters further, many record contracts state that a band cannot accept royalties from another label, which means that even if the Italian bootleg label does set aside some cash for the group, under the terms of their contract with their legitimate label, they almost never get to collect it. Greece was once another haven for bootleggers. Under that country's pro-democracy laws, police are almost barred from university campuses. This gives bootleggers a place to sell their stuff undisturbed. If you ever find yourself at Aristotelian U, which is Greece's largest university, just have a look at what they're selling at the market. You may be able to find CDs that are not supposed to exist anywhere, and they're usually less than 10 bucks each. Germany, Australia, the Principality of San Marino, and Italy were all sources of bootlegs, thanks to copyright laws that were once very lax. And then we have China, Russia, Ukraine, Brazil, Indonesia, Vietnam, and a host of other countries who had no issues with bootlegs. A lot of bootleg labels popped up too. 
One of the better ones, in fact, probably the best, was KTS, which stood for Kiss the Stone. It was initially based out of Italy and specialized in unofficial live recordings. Most of their work was done in the 1990s. They had great stuff from Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, U2, The Clash, Pixies, The Cult, The Cure, and hundreds of others. Most of their catalog was really good, solid soundboard recordings. In March 1997, though, American federal agents set up a sting operation that lured a bunch of bootleggers to Disney World. Thirteen people were arrested. Five of those people faced up to 35 years in prison, and one of those charged headed up KTS, Kiss the Stone. The bust drove that company out of business, at least for a while. They moved from the Republic of San Marino in Italy to a new headquarters in what appeared to be Singapore, although they seemed to be completely gone. I think. There was another company called Ultra Rare Tracks. They specialized in studio outtakes of very high quality. They exploited a loophole known as Protection Gap that allowed them to release older recordings because of copyright laws that weren't exactly clear. The best parts of their catalog were Beatles recordings. It's worth mentioning Prince. In late 1987, he planned to release a record called The Black Album, but at the last second, he decided that he didn't want to. 500,000 copies had already been manufactured and needed to be destroyed. But a few copies had already shipped. And when word got out that the album had been scrapped, the bootlegging began. Smaller players got involved too, thanks to cheap CD burners. They didn't need someone to manufacture your bootleg CDs for you. All you had to do was buy your own CD duplicating machine, buy a case of blank CDRs, and voila, you just became your own manufacturing plant. In the late 1990s, most of the bootlegs I saw were of the home-burned variety. They're usually gold on one side and a greeny or bluey color on the other. Chances are that if you went into a store and you bought one of these discs, euphemistically labeled Live Imports, the owner usually kept them under the counter for his special customers, it will come out as some kind of CDR. Here's a CD that I bought at a record store in San Diego sometime in the 1990s. It was sitting there, out in the open, right in the racks, and marked as a live import. It appears that this was one of those gray area UK releases where live performances could be recorded and released by anyone. It's on a label called Buccaneer Records. Not exactly subtle. And it features the Stone Roses performing in Tokyo in 1989. It's now time to move to the world of the internet. And this is where we tip from bootlegging to piracy, which is an entirely different animal. Like I said, physical bootlegs have largely dried up. All such recordings have migrated from the trunks of cars and stores to online. The result has been a game of whack-a-mole as copyright holders have issued takedown notices against YouTube and all the streaming music services. That's not going away and now just seems to be part of the cost of doing business. It's bootlegging in non-physical form, so in many senses, nothing has changed. Illicit live recordings, outtakes, and demos, same stuff. Piracy is straight-up theft, akin to counterfeit records and CDs. If you remember from Part 1, a counterfeit release looks and sounds like the real deal, but is a knockoff of the real thing, just like that Hermes bag you bought from the dude on the street. Let's start with the album leak, the inside jobs that have had terrible economic consequences. For example, 
There was an infamous situation at a CD plant in Kings Mountain, North Carolina that started back in the 1990s. Dell Glover was a temporary employee at the plant, which had a contract to manufacture CDs for Universal. He started trading albums that were pressed, but not yet shipped. He smuggled the discs out of the plant, burned them to a hard drive, and then let everyone know he had pre-released music via an IRC channel. By 2001, he had a file-sharing group called Rabid Neurosis. In the 11 years Glover managed his operation, he and Rabid Neurosis were responsible for leaking at least, are you ready for this? 20,000 albums. How much money did Dell and his friends make from this? Almost nothing. Their only desire was to be the first, to hear a record before anyone else. Glover was finally arrested in 2009 and spent three months in prison. The first organized online piracy group seems to have been a bunch called Compressed Audio, or CDA for short. On August 10, 1996, they released a version of Metallica's Until It Sleeps on an IRC channel. And when Napster and its descendants appeared in 1999, this kind of piracy exploded. One day, a guy walked into the radio station where I was working and said, have you heard the new Tragically Hip album? I said, no, it's not going to be out for a couple of weeks. And then he replied, would you like to? And he pulled out a burned CD of the full record. On a Sunday afternoon in 2004, an email popped in from somewhere in Eastern Europe. It offered me a copy of the new U2 album, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. It wasn't due in stores for another six weeks. And yet, here was a link to a download to the whole record. The label and management soon found out and launched into damage control mode. And it got pretty hairy. Album leaks are just one form of online piracy. Streaming has done more to eliminate piracy than anything else so far. After all, if you can get any song you want, anytime you want it for free or something close to it, why would you go through the hassle of stealing it? But pirates are going to pirate. First, there's stream ripping, the process of saving songs that streams to an offline file. Once you liberate a song this way from any internal protections, you can do whatever you want with it. Music is plagued with stream rippers, but movies and TV shows are the areas where things are the worst. There are sites like Area 51, Flickstore, I Stream It All, Movies Joy, and others that are infringing on these copyrights. Some claim immunity, like 123 Movies, which is based out of Vietnam where it is uh, technically legal. Movie studios, TV studios, record labels, music publishers, and governments all over the world are working to shut down stream ripping sites. And then there's this. In 2019, somebody sent me a Spotify link to an artist named Latesha Escalero. This person had zero presence anywhere on the internet. No website, no social media, no record label, no pictures, nothing. Yet Escalero was rocking up a ton of streams. Damn, this guy was good. In fact, he sounded a lot like Van Morrison. Well, it turned out that someone had ripped a 2016 Van Morrison album called Keep Me Singing, put it up on Spotify with a fake name and fake song titles. This fake artist problem keeps the streaming platforms up at night. But with more than 100,000 new songs being posted for streaming every single day, it's a major problem keeping up with these fakers. Finally, there are fake streams. 
if you know where to go, you can buy fake streams on Spotify or Apple or whatever. You can inflate your actual numbers. And if you do that, the algorithms take notice. Oh, here's a popular song. We must push it. The algos then take over the heavy lifting, earning the post unwarranted royalties. Not only is this cheating, but it hurts everyone. Artificially inflated streaming numbers ultimately lead to a decrease in overall royalty payouts. When fraud is discovered on a streaming platform, credibility is lost. Investment and advertising slows, and that leads to lower payouts to artists who are playing by the rules. Fake streams may lead to some short-term payouts, but they aren't good for a career. Fake numbers means fake fans, and if your fans are fake, what good are they? Other than a couple of fatter royalty checks, that is. What of old-school bootlegs in the 21st century? There have been busts in places like New Jersey, which resulted in the seizure of tens of millions of dollars worth of illegal CDs. Western countries put pressure on countries like China, Russia, and Bulgaria to do something about those rogue CD manufacturing plants that make everything from live Nine Inch Nails bootlegs to pirated copies of popular software. And Canada has had an anti-bootleg law since 1996 that makes it possible to both find bootleggers up to a million bucks and send them to jail for five years. Or both. I wonder how many people have been prosecuted under that law. There was once a guy who owned a record store in the French Caribbean, an island that we visited about once a year. On the second last day of our vacation, I would always pay a visit to see what he had in stock. I don't know who his suppliers of bootlegs were, but man, they were brilliant. Did I drop a couple of euros in his shop? Absolutely. The last time I dropped in, his stock had diminished greatly. Where are all the great rare records of live shows and demos you used to have, I asked. Monsieur, he replied, they are all gone. I cannot get them anymore. A year later, when I went into the store, it was gone. The trade in bootleg records, physical pieces of plastic, is nowhere near what it used to be. Recordings are still made at concerts, sometimes with the act's permission, but almost everything that's available, illegal or otherwise, is available online. Bootlegs, the old kind, are pretty much extinct. Many acts and industry people are very pleased about that. You can still find them at record shows occasionally, but again, they're in short supply. But man, it was pretty cool to have that illegal, illicit, and forbidden romance with this music that you loved while it lasted. There were hundreds of ongoing history shows available as podcasts. You can get them wherever you want to download them. And you know what? If I'm honest, if you know where to go online, you can find full bootleg versions of the radio show, music and all which um, bugs me a little bit, but I kind of take that as something of a compliment. Somebody worked really hard to steal this stuff and make it available. We can also meet on all the social media platforms. There's my website at journalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter. And don't forget about my other podcast, Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. It is true crime meets music. Get that at all your podcast platforms too. Finally, feel free to reach me via email anytime. My address is alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll see you next time. I'm Alan Cross.